Okay, let's go, let's go. Thanks for coming back. Everybody's trying to get back. <laughs> Ma'am, could you please have a seat? <laughs> eh, nothing changes. Okay. <laughs> uh, let's pray because that'll help. Okay, here we go. Uh, out of Christmas into Epiphany, Almighty God, Heavenly Father, who has called all the world, all your children, to enter fellowship with your Son, and wills that every last person be saved. Grant, we beg you, that the voice of your word goes out to every land, that the gospel is proclaimed to every creature, and that every nation may come to thank and serve you through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. All right, happy Epiphany. Thanks for coming back. Um, if you want a poinsettia, pick one up on your way out. You'll give it a better fate than we. Now, Carol is quite concerned that your poinsettia will freeze between here and your car. I have two things for you. One is, go to Jewel, buy groceries, bring the bag in, put it around your poinsettia. Or two, send your husband out to warm the car. But uh, if Carol does a spot check at your house on the Christmas poinsettias, and she comes over, say, 10 days from now, and all the leaves are off, I'm stepping out of the conversation, okay? So... We moved to Christmas to Epiphany, so you're, those, are, those are fair, especially if you, you know, bought one for somebody else, okay? So um, think about that. The other thing is, uh, in our you know, up and down schedule of things, uh, next week, so this has all come together with Pastor Nelson in the last 48 hours. This often happens in St. John, which is actually good. Um, the Archbishop of Latvia will be here, and he needed someone to care for him. And so uh, Pastor Nelson met him when he went on a sabbatical a few years ago, so they called and said, could you care for the Archbishop? Which we would be happy to care for the Archbishop for a couple of reasons. One is, if you're an Archbishop, uh, it, there's only one Lutheran church body in Latvia. He's it. Uh, it's extraordinarily diff difficult because of the way, you know, Soviet influence has washed across the churches and, and the things that they faced over the years. It's very interesting when they chose him, this is all like, you know, you have to say this in front of him, but, you know, at least the, the story is when he was chosen, he was chosen because he was the contemplative. There was kind of an administrative choice, a contemplative choice or theological. He was chosen because he was the contemplative and the church thought that's what we need at this time. Very interesting choice. He's a mensch. He suffered immensely. Uh, he's very good with other churches. In fact, and again, you know, polite conversation whether you ask him about this, but I believe that he was, had an audience with the Pope a few years ago uh, when the Pope kind of saw the Baltics. And so anyway, interesting guy. And we have, the Missouri Synod has a lot of, we actually have a, a, a school, a university or a seminary in, that we support in, in Latvia or Lithuania that kind of feeds the Baltics. And so... Anyway, there's an interesting story there. He's going to appear on our doorstep. This is all being negotiated in the last 48 hours. We're going to care for him at the very least, uh, but I think he's going to teach Bible study and preach next week. Now, of course, what I go to bed worrying about is how you explain to an archbishop that he can only preach 10 minutes. <laughs> These things are problematic, right? You know, there's difficult things sometimes in life you have to face. So I don't know exactly what will happen, but uh, in any way, stay tuned. Something will happen here next week. I just don't know what exactly what it is. So, all right, with that, I think everything else is caught up. Thanks for coming back. I had a couple of choices about how to proceed here. You know, one was that I could sort of go back and review because we haven't, we haven't um, 
been together for so long. But then on the other hand, you know, so much of this, I think that you know, and simply has to be brought to the forefront again, and you need to be encouraged to do it. You know, broadly speaking, uh, St. John has done pretty well over the, uh, over the last couple of years. Uh, mostly, I feel like we're out of the suffering, at least internally, that we've had, especially when uh, we're, we have other churches that we interact with who are still in, in great difficulty. And mostly, people have kind of learned to live with whatever differences might exist, and that's an extraordinarily positive thing. That said, you know, that doesn't get us beyond our boundaries. You know, it doesn't get us beyond our two square blocks. And we do actually have to think about, you know, what it means to be a broader witness in the world. Now, I mean, you know this about me. Right now there is, uh, you know, there's a couple of, of pushes in Lutheranism. One is to kind of collapse in on itself and only be for our own, almost an Amish or sectarian sort of way of proceeding. Uh, that only us and we have no interest in the rest, it's the only way that we'll survive. It's a strategy for surviving. Um, I think it's the wrong strategy because I don't think it honors what Jesus, well, it doesn't honor the prayer we just prayed, that you'd have all your children home, that you would go to every nation, that every creature would hear the gospel proclaimed. And I think in some sense, um, people are saying we're the faithful ones, but to me, um, that's exactly the unfaithful path to lose confidence that the gospel can hold up in the world. I said this, I can't, Nathan just asked me about it, I can't remember who, I can't remember who I talked to this week, but somewhere I was, oh, maybe new members. There was a study this week uh, that was published um, that, that talked about perception of Christians, and it basically said, until the year 2000, they studied 80 to 2000, they said if from 80 to 2000, people had an extraordinarily positive idea of Christians. If you were a Christian and told people that, that was an asset. Between 2000 and 2014, things sort of went neutral, but now since 2014, uh, the tide has turned so much against Christians that to admit that you're a Christian is really a detriment. And I see this particularly in younger folks who are trying to establish careers, who are um, trying not to say the wrong thing, who are trying not to be eliminated. And, and of course, you know, <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't eliminate discrimination by passing laws. You just uh, drive people to polish up their skills and eliminating the people that they don't really like. You just find a better way to do it or another excuse, right? And so, and of course, everybody knows this, and so people are extraordinarily careful, except in the most egregious senses where people are so kind of stupid about how they hate other people. Uh, you, you know, the whole point in hating people is to be subtle, of course. And, you know, we've learned that lesson very well. So um, that's the world we live in, and that makes it difficult. Uh, and I'm sort of at the point of like Raye, because this is exactly what the church faced for the first 300 years. Yeah, it was brutal. I mean, people were torn apart by lions and, you know, skinned alive and boiled in pitch. Okay, that's one side of it. The other side is, uh, out of that came the greatest thing that's ever been in the history of the world. And so you really, uh, you know, you're at a moment when you're kind of, kind of choose what you're going to do and let the chips fall where they fall. I don't think the way to proceed, I don't think the most helpful thing for yourself or for the rest of the world, and you have responsibilities in and you have responsibilities out, the most helpful thing is not simply to cash everything in and say, 
you know, we'll just batten down the hatches and the last one here turn out the lights, the Villa Park Soldiers and Sailors Club, which I've often told you about, right? Uh, so, I mean, there you go. The Villa Park Soldiers and Sailors Club in Trenton closed because the last two members couldn't find anybody who could meet their standards. So instead of having new members, they just closed. Well, okay, uh, if the Missouri Center turns out to be like the Villa Park Soldiers and Sailors Club, we, we had it coming. On the other hand, if we can say with great confidence, what the Lord has to offer is better than anything that anybody else has to offer, then we proceed and let the chips fall where it may, where they may. And we actually, frankly, don't have, it's not given to us to make that choice. Our choice is not, wow, the odds don't look good, so we'll just cash it in. That's not a choice for us, right? Um, even, you know, the people who invoke the Benedictines as a method, and the, that's a subtle argument, and you should, if you're reading around about that, you should think about that. One of the Benedictine vows was, of three, was stability. Do you stay put and have a great witness to people even if it kills you? What's the name of the movie but the monks at Tiburon? In Morocco, Algiers. Do you know what I'm talking about? Won the Academy Award. The last monk just died last month. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you know the movie? I can't remember the name of it. What is it? Say it again. No, not, not quite that. Um, it's, the, it's these, I don't know if you remember, it's a, fa it's a fabulous story from the late 80s where these monks were there and stuck in and there were all kinds of threats, but they said, we just kind of carry on. And one night they were sort of swept up and um, one guy happened to be like, you know, downstairs checking the laundry and another guy hid under his bed, but all the rest of them were swept up and eventually beheaded. Do you know this story? Yeah, and it's a fabulous, I mean, there's this movie about him that won some Academy Awards. Of course, it's foreign language, so you don't always, you know, see it, but kind of go, yeah, that's it. So in any case, you're trying to find your way. So I, I put it to you, and uh, as I was thinking about all this, I, I remembered an old Henry Nouwen quote. You know, just point number one, will we make it? You know, will we make it? That was really the first question a couple of years ago that people, I mean, for whatever reason, the agitation, and, and rightly so in some ways, the agitation was so high, the question was, you know, basically, are we all going to die, right? And, um, you know, are we that fragile, or can we make it through? But another way people have put it is, you know, for America, for example, or the church, will the pendulum swing back? In one sense, you always say, you know, it comes back, it comes back. But, you know, of course, when you're out on the edge, you're like, ah, what happens if it doesn't come back? Right? This is the nervousness. So um, then this quote from Nowen, how can we live in the midst of a world marked by fear, hatred, and violence, and not be destroyed by it. So there's the question. You live in sort of a nasty world, and even if it's not, you know, people breaking down your doors as it is other places, you know, even if it's not that, how can you survive? Are you going to make it, right? How can you live in this world and not be destroyed by it? That's the question people are trying to answer, especially Christians. When Jesus prays to his Father or his disciples, he responds to this question by saying, I'm not asking you to remove them from the world, but to protect them from the evil one. So, I mean, there it is. He doesn't say, you know, move away. Uh, you know, he says, 
stick in there. So stay in, stay at work. They don't belong to the world any more than I belong to the world. So this classic phrase, we are in the world but not of the world, so we live differently. One of the things I've always admired about Wheaton College and the students is uh, the way they're so interconnected, the way people do favors for each other, the way they hire kids as interns, the way they promote. And their um, Wheaton College folks, I mean, I, I give them this, they're everywhere. You know, they're in big law firms, they're in Chicago, uh, they're in hedge funds, they are all over Wall Street, they are in technology. You know, they are at the, these, these folks are at the top end. And one thing that I see them doing that Lutherans don't do is they favor their own. And they say, you're a Christian kid going into a difficult spot, I will help you. We largely don't do that. Um, I spend a lot of time calling in favors from people, and often when I do people's eyes cross as if I'm doing a weird thing. Now, we should be doing this all the time for each other, right? If you have a business, you should be hiring St. John kids and teaching them how to work hard. Uh, if you see kids going into a difficult profession, you should be encouraging them here. You shouldn't say to people, you can only do this or that, you know. You should say, the world is open to you in every possibility. This is how it was in the early church. You know that it's true because in the early church, every once in a while, you know, they'd pull in a very high official and they'd say, denounce Christ or have your head cut off. And the guy'd be like, ugh, sharpen up the blade. So, you know, this is how the world works. It doesn't, it's not about withdrawal, it's about penetration, it's about influence, it's about the gospel is so good and so remarkably different from the way people are acting in our world today, it'll get traction if you just give it a chance. And if it doesn't, it's not up to you. That's the point. You do the right thing and you let the chips fall where it may. Is this world going to destroy me? Jesus said, don't take them out of the world. Leave them right where they are. I haven't lost one of them yet, right? To live in the world without belonging to the world summarizes the essence of the spiritual life. The spiritual life keeps us aware that our true house, and you should mark this, is not the house of fear. The overriding emotion, I would say, in our congregation, but certainly in our world of the past two years, has been fear. What will happen to me? Is this the end of me? Is that person endangering me? Right? We don't live in a house of fear in which the powers of hatred and violence rule, but in the house of love where God resides. So, there you go. And you know this text, right? Perfect love casts out fear. And the way that you get perfect love is to come here to the altar and to the scriptures and to be filled up by it, to pray about it, and to be strengthened by it, to ask the Holy Spirit to come into your heart, to ask the Holy Spirit to pray for you, to ask Jesus to come into your heart, to ask Jesus to pray for your family. That's your job. These things aren't, these things aren't complex. They're fairly simple. The problem, the failure, is always in the execution. Chesterton, you know, it's not that Christianity has been tried and failed, it's that nobody ever tries, right? You kind of go, oh, okay, right? So, there's no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Fear has to do with punishment, and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. I just want to be clear that I'm not suggesting to you on the other side that you go out and look for trouble. I'm just saying that you and I should live in the image of Christ. You live in the image of Christ. 
Christ didn't look for trouble, right? The only people Christ ever got mad at were pastors and bishops and popes, you know, high, high priests. You're pretty safe, right? So just kind of move on. Or I just put it simply to you, what are you so afraid of? Right? What are you so afraid of? What could really happen to you? Especially if you would, and of course you get the theme from the title, especially if you would hang together just a little bit. If you would share sorrow, but also share strength. It's, it's, I'm almost embarrassed to, to say this to you because you know, you're grown-ups, you know this. And yet, if we don't keep it in the front of our mind, Um, things overcome us. I was, I, you know this from the number of times I've said it to you, I've taken to reading a, a, um, some exorcists. Not because I'm so interested in the exorcisms themselves. I'm very interested in how they, the exorcism, I'm not, I'm not really interested in at all. That's not the point. The point is, they're very perceptive about how demons tempt us, about how Satan works on us. They're very perceptive about human nature. And they're very perceptive because they're up against it in kind of a raw environment. And I, was, I read this week about um, one of the most interesting things about Satan is we always think that we have the, you know, I'm forgiven, I have Jesus in my heart, and then everything's okay. And then, you know, and, and Lutherans, we kind of just like the devil, the world, and our flesh, but we don't really kind of kind of spell that out or what that means. One of the interesting ways that we're tempted is we all have particular weaknesses. So you can just think about your own right now. I can certainly think of mine. One of the ways that, um, so so for G, no one could love their husband more than G does. So that's not where temptation is going to come for you. Uh, Temptation is going to come when you worry about pick something. I'm not going to name your stuff because I know you and I don't want to. But what, what Satan does is watches us. I've often talked to you about how, you know, you have an angel watching you, but you also have a demon willing to tempt you. What happens is, is that the things that you're given to, if you're given to envy, the demon amplifies that. If you're given to selfishness, miserliness, the demon amplifies that. If you're given to compulsion, the demon amplifies that. I was talking with Pastor Nelson this week. Um, over the past couple of years, uh, there's been such a run on pastoral care here. But one of the really interesting things we found is that the very first step of pastoral care for almost everybody, this is almost, if you come in, this is probably what a pastor is going to say to you. Go to church every Sunday for 30 days and say your prayers every, sun, every, every day for 30 days. Then come back and we'll have our first meeting. And often Pastor Nelson gives a, you know, some Jesuit questions about self-examination. I have some different things I ask people. But either way, this very, you would think this is super simple, right? People come in. They're suffering enough. They'll come in to see their pastor. Am I going to make it? Am I going to be destroyed? Am I fragile? Is the pendulum going to swing back? And then you say to them, here's where we'll start. Go to church the next four Sundays. Say your prayers the next 30 days. If you don't know how to say your prayers, say these prayers. That drops about 80% of the people out of the equation, which makes me wonder how deep the pain can really be or alternately how amplified the temptations really are. 
Because that's always the first step in temptation. You go to church, you go to the Eucharist, you say your prayers. This is why the daily Eucharist, if you can come, it's your salvation. There's nothing that Satan hates more than the daily Eucharist, right? There it is. There's nothing Satan hates more than you saying your prayers. This is why I've encouraged you at times to say your prayers out loud. Even if you just say, what are classic exorcism prayers? If you're dying and I come sit next to you, what I'm going to say is, glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. Glory to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. I'm going to say that in a perfect number, three or eight or twelve, and then I'm going to say, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy, Lord have mercy, Christ have mercy, Lord have mercy. I'm going to say that in a perfect number, three or seven or eight or twelve. And people who are around often think nothing is happening. Everything is happening, right? It's sort of like when the incense goes up, like, is nothing happening or is everything happening? I'm just telling you, at that moment, everything is happening because Jesus loves it and the devil hates it. So everything is happening. The problem is right now in execution. The problem is not that we don't know. It's that Christians have lost their, have, have lost their punch, right? Not in a political sense, in a faithful sense. Almost everything I read by pastors is being rewritten in a political way. You wouldn't have to go to church to get what you're getting from most pastors. What you need is the Eucharist. What you need is to treasure up what you got in your baptism. What you need is to say your prayers. What you need is to go to church. And that's what I need too. Will you be destroyed? Not if you go to church. Will you be destroyed? Not if you say your prayers. Will you be destroyed? Not if you go to the Eucharist. Will you be destroyed? No, you will not. You may suffer, right? You may be in pain, and regularly things will ramp up. You know, they'll get worse, and then they'll get better, but they'll get worse. But the whole point is to keep going, right? So what are you so afraid of? If you know the way out, you know, what are you so afraid of? Wow, it's 10.30, I'm at point two. This is fabulous. <laughs> if we're going to make it, how will we make it, right? Well, very few folks can make it on their own. Even in the history of the church, people who went out and lived in the, in the desert or the Cappadocians, right, when they lived out in the caves in Turkey. Very few people can make it, can make it on their own. And the devil, you know, we did this very early on. Diablos is actually the word that means to divide or to scatter people. So, you know, your, your, your weaknesses get amplified. And if you don't mend them or stop your ears, uh, that'll be really hard for you. To survive, it takes each other. I read... Um, this week I was reading about one of the Desert Fathers. Um, these guys would go live in the desert by themselves. They're basically, there, and that's the odd thing, right? But then people would say, they must know something. And they would come and sit at their feet and they would beg, tell us, Father, tell us, tell us, week after week after week, tell us, tell us the secrets, tell us the way. And you know, then, one day, you know, the, the, 
the old man or the old woman would finally speak. Weep for your sins. And then they'd be silent for another month or two. It's not, it's not complicated. Weep for your sins. It's not complicated. Weep for your sins for six weeks and then see what comes next. But we need each other because we need to help each other in that. It's very difficult. And so even in our world as twisted up as it is, you know, everybody knows community is the key. So if you're following, you know, NFL football weekend, or if you're following, you know, the metaverse, or if you're following already the jockeying for the next election in November, uh, community, political parties, things that hang together, team sports, right? Um, it's amazing. I don't know if you saw that. Did you see the gambling numbers last week when uh, in New York you could, you could gamble on, a, on your phone last week? Did you see it? Did anybody see it? Well, the bright news is that New York got 51% of the take taxed. So there's more money for people into New York to do whatever it is that they do with that money. I know you'll all be pleased about that. But they had this, I saw this map where they were flashing every time a bet went off. If those were bombs, New York wouldn't exist anymore. It was unbelievable the amount of money that was, right? Because people are interested and people put their money in what they believe in, right? They bet on their team and they're part of their group. So deep down, you know, even in twisted sorts of ways, we know that we need other people around. Most people need, even when Paul says, you know, celibacy is an uncommon gift in the church. We need other people. But how a community is shaped, what it presumes about God and about human beings, very simple things like, you know, I was talking to a biologist the other day who doesn't believe that love exists. It's very interesting, right? Because this, kind of, this is kind of my, this is the only wind in my sails. And he's like, no, these are just chemical reactions in your brain. None of these things really exist. They're just chemical expressions. You just sense them in a particular way. Of course, my question is always the same, which is what made the big bang bang? Or where'd the chemicals come from, right? So there's always, there's always a question behind the question. Uh, it seems to me to be much more interesting. But um, how, what we presume about human beings, what we presume about, uh, about God, there was this kind of a well-written but very lame article in the New York Times yesterday about a guy who basically, it was a guy who'd been an Orthodox Jew and doesn't believe in God now. And then not only doesn't believe in God, can't believe why anybody else would believe in God. And this throwaway quote was, we all figured that out in the, 17th, in the 18th century. That was all worked out in the 1700s. And I just want to say to myself, you read that in a book somewhere. Do you actually know what happened in the 1700s? I wanted to buy him Kleinig's new book on Henry Hamann and send it as a gift. Uh, Kleinig just translated this book on a guy named Henry Hamann, who was Kant's roommate. And the only guy that Kant was really afraid of, and of course, intellectually. I mean, they were friends, but intellectually. And he's all the rage in, I mean, I was reading a Catholic devotion the other day, and the, this priest quotes Henry Hamann. I'm like, Really? This Lutheran guy? I mean, it's, he's, making, he's got this sort of big comeback. In fact, I talked to a guy who was interviewing for a job in a theology department, and two of the guys asked him questions about Haman. And his, you're kind of like, huh, right? This Lutheran guy who, because you know what? It isn't that easy. Hey, we just had, we had the 1700s, so we all figured out we're not going to believe in God. I'm like, 
really? You're getting paid to write that for the New York Times? I'm going to apply. This looks easy to me. I check all the boxes. So, uh, you know, what do people value? Where do we get our strength? What do we care about? What's our final authority? What do we appeal to? What's true? What do we emphasize, right? We have to think about that in the church as well. And you can figure it out. It's not hard. I mean, things like, and I've already made my pitch for this, but remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Why is that important? Because God thinks you should, you know, come to church? No, because God loves you and he wants to give you some gifts. You know, I said this yesterday in, you know, new members class, you know, unbelievers think that sin, uh, unbelievers think that, that, um, that sin is freedom. And believers know that sin is bondage. It's just that simple. See, that's a basic way in how you think about the world, what you're going to do. You know, are you really going to put your nose in the meat slicer? Right? Are you really going to slam your finger in that door? It's really a bad idea. If you want to keep doing it, okay. But if you want to keep doing it, this is the society you get. Right? So, what do we value and what's important? Um, Things like... Let's consider how to stir one another up in love and good works, not neglecting to meet together and um, encouraging one another to uh, encouraging one another and all the more as we see the day drawing near. And so um, I'm going to try to push you to two words and then we're going to come back and talk about this later. Basically, what I wanted, I've, you know, these are things... Sometimes I'm almost embarrassed to kind of put them out there, but then I think, ah, maybe you haven't thought about this for a while, and maybe I haven't either, so we should. But this notion of sharing each other's suffering and sharing each other's strength. And these great two words, comfort, um, compassion and comfort, so calm, with, or together, pasio, right? Compassion with suffering, right? And then... um, Comfort, um, come uh, fortitudo with, you know, with strength or, or uh, the adjective fortis with. So basically this, we share strength and we share pain. This is, you know, we had a funeral yesterday. Why do we have a funeral yesterday? Because we want to share pain and we want to share strength. Somebody comes, they're very broken sometimes so shattered they can't even talk or cry. So what do we do? We talk for them. We say prayers. We read the scriptures. We cry for them. We pray for them when they can't pray. We share in the suffering, right? And we share in the strength. This will see you through. This is the gospel. This is the God who still loves you. So if we can do these two two things... um, it would round out your toolbox of ways to be the church together. So number four, and maybe we'll sort of end on this. Um, Dorothy Day, who was, you know, the Catholic Workers' Party, and, uh, you know, you might not have, if you know anything about her, you might not think that, you know, her politics are all yours, but uh, the notion of suffering with people and being strong with other people so now here's a wor- woman. I think this. I think she may be. Uh, 
has been beatified, so she may be on the way to sainthood. I'd have to kind of look that up. If it were not for, this is point four, if it were not for scripture on the one hand and communion on the other, I could not bear my life. That's a remarkable thing for somebody who's on the way to sainthood to say. If it wasn't for scripture and the Holy Supper, I couldn't I couldn't bear to live. But daily, it brings me joy in this sorrow. And so now you have to kind of reach back and remember that joy and happiness aren't the same. Happiness is the emotion, the reaction. Joy is knowing that you're doing what the Lord asks you to do. That you and the Lord are in it together. That you're living in holiness. That's joy. That sin is bondage. And obedience is freedom. I'm sorry that, yeah, sin is bondage and obedience is freedom. If it weren't for scripture on the one hand and communion on the other, I could not bear my life. But daily it brings me joy in this sorrow, which is part of our human condition. And a real, very real and vital sense of the meaning and fruitfulness of these sufferings. Now here's the thing, we almost never talk this way. There are a few people right now who are suffering, suffering in this congregation grievously who do talk this way. And when you call them on the phone, you kind of go, huh, you always learn something from them. But we don't usually talk this way. We, don't, we always think of our suffering as a problem to be solved rather than a lesson to be learned. We think of our suffering as something to be brushed away as opposed to something to be embraced or at least to be patient with. The meaning of suffering and the fruitfulness of these sufferings. Thomas Akempis, a mystic not at all in fashion now, says, in the cross is joy of spirit. Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. There is no one living who is not bearing a cross of some kind. So you should kind of look around the room and when we get short with each other or things are difficult, You know, it's Oswald Chambers saying, there's always one fact about the other guy's story that you don't know. My grace is sufficient, God promises us. Compassion, com plus passio. Compassion is a word that means to suffer with. If we all carry a little of the burden, it will be lightened. If we share in the suffering of the world, then some will not have to endure so heavy an affliction. It evens out. So now I just have to ask the question about people who want to retreat, who refuse to bear the suffering of the world. Where's the compassion for those people? Unless we only have compassion on the people whom we love, but then you're going to have to reconcile this with the story of the prodigal son and the Good Samaritan that both use the same word. So to me, it doesn't seem that withdrawal is a Christian option. What you do here in New York, in Harrisburg, helps those in China, India, South Africa, Europe, and Russia. You have to think back to the politics of when this was written, uh, 1900s, you know, earlier 1900s. You may think you are alone, but we are members of one another. We are children of God together.
And so often, you know, we think we're children of God and we think those other people are children of the devil. Every human being has dignity. Every human being was created in the image of God. Yes, it goes horribly wrong. And yes, evil can be done by humans that can't even be understood. And that's not your business. Your business is to do good, right? And protect others as you're able. It's not just so simple as to say, we're the good guys and those are the bad guys. To enter into the world is to engage the evil with good. As Jesus says, wise as serpents and innocent as doves. I write to comfort others who have been comforted. As I have been comforted. I write to comfort others as I have been comforted. So we all have mentors. We all have community. We all have people who've taught us that beautiful prayer that we said at Christmas time about our parents and people who worship God on another shore, in another place. These are the two greatest prayers we have of the year, the Christmas prayer and the vigil prayer, right? Where we pray for everybody. Those who know you not. That great phrase in the Christmas prayer. So, the word comfort means to be strong together, to have fortitude together. So now you have these two words, compassion, sharing suffering, and comfort, sharing fortitude, sharing strength. And you have no choice about that if you want to be the church. There's a reminder of community. Once when I suffered and sat in church in a misery, and you've probably been this like this a time or two, where you sat in church while the waves and the billows passed over me. So everybody else is doing fine, and all you can do is feel the wash of the suffering. I suddenly thought, with exultation, I am sharing suffering, which is to say, I'm not alone, right? I'm not unloved. Somebody loves me. Somebody's with me. I'm part of a community. I'm not going to be destroyed. And immediately it was lightened. In patience, and we saw that this morning in the Gospel with Mary, where Jesus says, Mary says to Jesus, get busy. Jesus says to Mary, be patient. In patience you will possess your souls. Patience means suffering. And suffering, and I just, can you just like absorb this as a glass, classic definition? Suffering is spiritual work. Now that's not what you think when you're suffering. It's not what I think when I'm suffering. But this is, this is somebody who knows something. When I suffer, I want to solve it. And from knowing you, when you suffer, you want to so- solve it too. There's very few people who say, I'm suffering and I'm going to put my work in now. I'm suffering and I'm going to learn something. That is a rare, rare reaction to suffering. Patience means suffering, and suffering is spiritual work, and it is accomplishing something, and that's what we don't. We measure our suffering by solution. If we can can stop our suffering, then we know it's okay. It's that great quote from Alexander Schneeman that I read before I go to the hospital often. He says, The doctors have failed, the pastor comes. The pastor is not there to stop the awful suffering. The pastor has come to make the one who suffers a martyr. That is, a witness to Christ. Right? So we think about this completely in the wrong way. Right? We 
we want to solve our suffering or we let our suffering defeat us, right? My prayers aren't being answered, so I guess I won't pray anymore. I'm still tempted by the same thing, so there's no point in going to the Eucharist or going to church, right? I'm in so much pain and nobody seems to love me and nobody seems to care. Right? That's how we think about our suffering. But there's another way. Suffering is to learn something, right? Suffering is to put in spiritual work. It is part of our education. It is part of our pilgrimage to heaven. By it, we keep in mind that, and then the great words of St. Catherine of Siena, all the way to heaven is heaven. And we hardly ever remember that. All the way to heaven is heaven, right? This is like, you know, you kind of, there's a reason she's a doctor of the church. All the way to heaven is heaven. Sometimes, you know, you say it in five words or less, you kind of go, oh, yeah, I wish I was, you know, 1% that smart. Anyway, we'll come back to this, but I know not when. So, um, you know, show up next week. Who knows what will happen? I've never met this guy. If he shows up and is ready to go, fabulous. If he doesn't show up or his flight gets canceled or something is weird, you know, we'll just kind of carry on. But let's pray and then let's go back to church. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. All right, thanks. Take care of each other. See you soon.